Alright, just again, in case you had a donut clouding your brain as Marty was talking, we will not be here next Sunday. This will be filled with Worst Fest. And while I would love to see you at Worst Fest, uh, I will not see you in this building next Sunday because we will not be here. And I tell you what, let's just try this. Let's not set our clocks next week and then we'll all be early to church. Won't that be nice? Let's see that. Well, uh, my name is Derek McCollum. I'm the pastor here. If I haven't met you, I would love to. We are in the middle of a series uh, in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. A church that he planted and then that he pastored from afar. And he's writing this letter to check in with them. And as we've been saying really um, most weeks... One of the really wonderful things about Ephesians is that it's kind of split in two. With the first three chapters being full of what is true about Christians, what God has done in Christ that takes us from death to life in Jesus. In fact, Paul just over and over is just pouring out this wonderful truth throughout the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then, because of that, he switches about midway through in chapter 4 and begins to talk about what we're supposed to do. How do we live in light of what Jesus has done for us? So we are in the second half of chapter 2 this morning. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 32 is what we're going to look at. If you've got your Bible, you can open it up there. It's also printed in your bulletin. Listen now as I read from God's Word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him rather labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up and fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we do uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for these encouragements and admonishments even. We thank you, Lord, for... giving us a guide, not leaving us alone. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to just go searching for what you want from us. You've revealed it to us in kind and gentle and gracious ways. 
Father, will you transform us by your word? Will you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, um, <coughs> sorry, I've got, <coughs> thank you, the basketball game last night, must have cheered too hard. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to read these books called Choose Your Own Adventure Books. Anybody my age ever grow up with Choose Your Own Adventure Books? And uh, it was a really pretty cool concept. You would start reading this book, and, you know, there in about the second or third chapter, you'd kind of be left with a little bit of a decision, with a cliffhanger. Say, the book is describing how you're walking through some dark corridor that's in the basement of an old castle, and you come to this place where the road starts to split, and you're not sure what to do. And so at the end of the chapter, it would say, if you want to turn right, flip to page 32. If you'd like to turn left, flip to page 26. And then it would actually take you on different paths throughout the book. There were multiple kind of ways that you could go and end up in different places. It was really fun as a kid. In a lot of ways, it was exciting and kind of empowering. It was also sometimes a little overwhelming because you're like, oh, I don't know what to do. Like somebody, te- you know, somebody come and guide me. I'm not sure which one to take. You know, it's interesting that concept, the concept of choice, is such a huge thing in our culture. There is a, a psychologist and a, an author named Barry Schwartz uh, who teaches psychology at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. He's written a book and he's done a TED Talk um, called The Paradox of Choice. And here's what he says, is that the official dogmas, he calls the official dogma of our Western culture is that more choice equals more happiness. That's kind of the way that we're built as a culture. If you can increase and maximize my choice, then you will increase and maximize my happiness. Right? So the amount of ways that I have to choose what I want to do is going to make me happier. And if you go into your local grocery store, he says, you know, you will see this on display, right? These, these are the numbers he gives. Uh, in, a, in a regular, typical grocery store, 285 varieties of cookies, 230 different soups, 275 different kinds of cereal, 175 salad dressings, and 40 different kinds of toothpaste. That's a lot of stuff. And the reason it's a lot of stuff is because marketers know the official dogma. They know that we think that more choice equals more happiness, so they give us lots of choices. But you know, when you flip over to Ephesians 4, and really the whole content of Barry Schwartz's book, he's talking about how actually that official dogma is not true. In fact, more choice leads to less happiness for us as human beings. This is, he's not a Christian writer. He's, he's laying out really what is true of humanity, that what we think is going to make us happy is actually just the opposite. It's doing just the opposite to us. And God's word agrees. We get to Ephesians chapter 4, and what the Apostle Paul says is, there are not many, multiple, myriad of roads in which to follow that you can go and find happiness and flourishing in your in life. There's actually one path that God has placed his people on, and he has said, this is the way. Now, let me show you the way to wholeness and flourishing in life. 
That's much of what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 4. He's contrasting the old path, which really is in many ways a myriad of ways to seek happiness and fulfillment on our own, with the way that God has actually given us to go and find that wholeness, that fulfillment, that fruitfulness uh, that we were called to be, true humanity. We're going to look at that path in in a few different ways this morning. We're going to talk about it uh, in three different terms. We'll see that it is uh, it is first a loving path, that it is also a protected path or way, and that it is a beautiful path. So if you are one of those who likes to write down the points of the sermon in your bulletin, here's your chance. I'm giving you a preview. Loving path, protected path, and beautiful path. Let's start with that idea of a loving path. As you open up these first few chapters, I mean first verses, let me just read a few of them again to you in 17 through 24. This I say to you and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is into them due to, in them due to the hardness of their hearts. So this is the way that he's talking about the old life that they have left. And he continues saying this. They've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So he begins to actually lay out uh, a, a dichotomy here. Two things compared to one another. The old way in which you live, the old path, we would say, and the new way. And remember, these first three chapters, what he's done is he's been saying, listen, if you are a believer in Christ, what God has done is he's taken you out of that old way and he's put you on this new path. And so he begins then to, to contrast the two. And as he's describing this old way, he uses some big categories. First of all, he said, is that it is a callousness of heart. That's one of the things that is described in this old way of living, is a calloused heart. A hardened, calloused heart. Friends, there is a life that is lived that is turned away from the gentle leading of God's Spirit and is continually over and over indulging in selfishness in such a way that our hearts can actually become calloused. Like the hands of somebody who's worked a lot with their hands. I used to play this little trick when I was a kid. I'd take, I'd take needles and I'd stick them just through the calluses in my hands and I'd be like, look, I got needles in my hands. And it was so cool. I thought it was really fun. And the thing is, you, you can't feel the needle going through the callus because the callus is dead. The skin is dead. And as Paul is describing kind of this old way of life, what he's saying is that there is a stubbornness of heart that is built on a continual insensitivity to God's will and His leading that begins to make it calloused, that begins to make our hearts hard, that is turned inward and fueled by selfishness and greed and lust and just kind of has no feelings at all. Friends, he's talking, I want to remind you of this, to the church in Ephesus, okay? So it is possible for Christians to have hearts that are so calloused that that they are almost numb to the leading of God's Spirit. He goes on to say that that calloused heart actually leads to a darkened mind. To a mind that is instead of enlightened by God's Word, by His Spirit, that is actually darkened. That calloused hearts lead to minds that just make bad decisions. 
Decisions that are continually fueled by that selfishness, that greed, that lust for more, that desire for more of me, or that self-righteousness even. And so the callousness of our hearts leads to decisions of our minds that are darkened, and then really he kind of culminates this in saying there are lives that are alienated from God. Lives that are really lived apart from God. Calloused hearts and darkened minds actually lead then to a divided relationship, to a death of relationship. But that is not, Paul says here, the way that you learned Christ. And he begins to compare here, to contrast the difference between the old life and the new. And listen to what he talks about. Listen to the way he describes even the new life. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The word we could use really to describe this, to kind of summarize this, is godliness. It is a tenderness of heart that is tender to the Spirit's leading. It is a mind that is actually being renewed and enlightened by God's Word, by worship, by prayer, by His community. And He is continuing actually to open and enlighten our minds so that the decisions that we make are made out of tender hearts and enlightened minds. And He goes on then to say is that God's people actually become more like Him, more holy, more righteous, the things that describe who God is, is that we actually become more and more like Him. Now some of you are thinking, okay, you you told me I should write this down, and what I wrote down was a loving path. Like, where's the loving part, right? Because it just sounds like a whole bunch of rules that you're talking about here. Well, here's the thing. Oftentimes, we get this whole concept just kind of messed up. We have our understanding of sin and of righteousness totally backward. Because oftentimes our conception of sin is, it's the really fun stuff that I want to do that God won't let me do. Okay, if we're honest with ourselves, that is oftentimes the definition that we functionally give to what sin is. It's the really fun stuff in life that I really want to do that God says I have to stay away from. Now, if that is your conception of what sin is and who God is, guess what that changes about, you know, how you think about God. He's just kind of really a taskmaster. He's kind of just really somebody that wants to keep me away from the things that are good for me. But that really is a very immature way of thinking about sin, isn't it? In fact, it's a lot like, uh, you know, the four-year-old who thinks, I would love to eat an entire box of Twinkies right now. And, and, and I think that my happiness and my fulfillment will come completely in this box of Twinkies. In fact, there, there is no happiness to be found outside of eating this box of Twinkies right now. Now, the loving mother who loves her child and wants that child to flourish knows that eating an entire box of Twinkies in 10 minutes is actually not going to lead to happiness. It's going to lead to a very upset stomach. The loving mother knows that because she's probably eaten an entire box of Twinkies before, right? We all, we all kind of have been through that drill. So what's she going to do with her child? Is she just going to let her roam wild and do whatever he or she wants? Of course not. The loving mother will say, you have to have these limits. You can't go and do what you want because it will destroy you. 
Friends, we will not understand the concept of sin and righteousness. We will not understand even who God is until we get this straight. God loves us and He wants us to flourish. And sin will destroy us. And He doesn't want us to be destroyed. Once we flip that understanding of sin, we start to see, oh, this is a loving path. This is actually a path that we have been set on by a God who says, I don't want you to be darkened. I don't want your hearts to be calloused. I don't want your minds to be darkened and shrunk. I don't want you to be alienated from me. I want you to be near me and like me. So walk in this way. That is, that is the calling of a loving father who desires that we flourish, who desires that we find life, who desires that we find wholeness. That's the first part. It's a loving path. Let's switch to the second one. It's also a protected path. And this one is going to sound kind of like the first because what happens is that Paul actually begins to lay out what God says to stay away from. Okay, God says, alright, here are the things, again, because I love you, here are the things that are going to destroy you. So don't do these things. Think about this like you're walking down a road and there's these terrible ditches on either side, right? And you'd want to put up signs that say, don't fall off the ditch, like don't turn right right here because you'll fall off the ditch and into the cliff and that would be bad. Well, this is how the Lord actually begins to put those signs in for us to kind of hedge us in. He says all of this in verses 25 through 32. And in a lot of ways, uh, it can be really pulled into three big categories. Things that will destroy the church are anger, anger that kind of erupts violently, or anger that seethes and festers. If you look here uh, at verse 25 or 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. He seems to be giving a little bit of a caveat there, that there is something called righteous anger. But guess what? We don't usually practice it, okay? So if you just skip down to the end and see in 31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. So he kind of just covers it all by saying, Alright, I've caveated it a little bit for you. Yes, there's sometimes righteous anger. But most of the time, your anger is not righteous, so let's put it away. And he puts it in these categories of, there are things like clamoring and wrath and rage and malice, and maybe your version says something like brawling. That is anger that erupts. Anger that pours out of us immediately like a volcanic eruption. And it finds itself in violence, verbally or physically. It finds itself in a quick response. Here's my emotion and here's my action. And it is oftentimes sinful. That will destroy our church. It will destroy your heart. It will destroy your marriage and your friendships. If that is the pattern of your life, your relationships will not be good. There is also anger, though, that is not erupting. That is a different kind of anger. Because, look, he also talks about bitterness and slander. There is anger that just kind of festers for a while. Uh, I had my appendix removed when Joy and I were, were engaged. When we were dating, actually. Almost engaged. And uh, I had this really strange kind of the way that my appendix um, kind of 
well, the, the way that it was removed was just different than most others because I started to get sick, my stomach started to hurt, and I went to the doctor and I thought, something's wrong with me, maybe I have appendicitis. And the doctor said, you know what, we'll check you out. But it doesn't really look like appendicitis. It doesn't look like the most of the things that I see when people come in uh, with appendicitis. And so, you're probably fine. It's probably gas. Just lay off the refried beans and you'll probably be alright here in a few days. And I thought, okay, I'll be okay. But over the course of about three more weeks, I just got sicker and sicker and sicker. And the reason was my appendix did not just kind of blow up like most people's appendixes do. It was just slowly leaking poison into my body. And so over the course of those three weeks or so, I just got sicker and sicker and sicker because there was more and more of this slowly leaking poison all throughout me. And I spent spent four days in the hospital, and I had this really nice size scar to prove it. But oftentimes our anger can be like my appendix, right? It doesn't just blow up. We don't see it immediately, but it just kind of seethes. It just festers. It just brews inside of us. And it comes out in bitterness or withdrawal. It comes out in passive-aggressive kind of behavior. And what Paul says is that is just as dangerous to your heart and to the church as the erupting kind of anger. He goes on to to give a second kind of category too, and that is theft. We've got to stay, if we are going to be, like he has said earlier in this chapter, a mature church, we've got to stay away from theft. He says, if you're stealing, don't steal. Now, I know, this, is, this one is an easy one to just gloss over and go, okay, I can check out here for the next four or five minutes while he's talking about that, because clearly nobody in the church is stealing, right? Well, while I doubt we have an enormous problem with theft in this church, uh, I don't doubt that it exists. In fact, it existed in the Ephesians church, or Paul wouldn't be writing in the present tense here. The one who is stealing, stop stealing. But while we probably don't have a lot of bank robbers in our congregation, uh, there are other ways of stealing things, right? You may not have stolen somebody's watch, but what about stealing ideas? Have you ever told a story, repeated a story that somebody told you and just kind of inserted your name instead and kind of owned it as your own story because other people would laugh and it would make you feel good? I have. We may not have stolen our food so that we wouldn't have to work, but have you ever just kind of cut corners at work? So that what is shown to be produced is not really what was produced. We may not have stolen goods from somebody else, but what about uh, test questions? Maybe that's something that we've taken little bits of. Or how about just fudging, just a little bit, fudging that sales price when you go to the county tax office to pay the tax on your car and just say, no, I actually paid a little bit less on it, therefore maybe you'll charge me a little less tax. Friends, even those little ways that we oftentimes take what is not ours are ways that God is protecting us from when he says stay away from these things. Because they will kill the church and they will ruin our hearts. Here's the last thing he talks about is this concept of um, what I will call rotten talk. Listen to the way that he says it here. Uh, in verse 20, where are we? Verse 26, 29, excuse me. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Corrupting talk, the word literally there in Greek is a word that means rotten or putrid. 
It's the word that you would use for five-day-old fish. Okay? So it's a word that describes something that is not just useless, but is actually starting to do harm. And what Paul is saying is that the words that we use with each other can not only just be vacuous and pointless, but they can be rotten. They can be, they can be putrid. They can actually begin to rot even our own selves and our relationships. He goes on to talk about things like slander, what we say about each other. Now, what's the most prevalent form of that probably these days? Gossip. And what's the Christian form of gossip? Prayer requests. <laughs> Y'all, pray for Mary. Did you hear what happened? Well, right? As Christians, we oftentimes can kind of just put this little Christian glaze over gossip and say, we're praying for you, which really oftentimes means we're talking about you behind your back. But what Paul says here is that that will destroy our church. And what's more, it will destroy your heart as well. What he is doing here, again, is he is finding for us a protection, a floor. He is giving us a floor. God is giving us a floor to say, on the Christian life, on this path that I've called you to, here are the things not to go below. Right? Because if you go below this floor, there's going to be danger. It's going to be really, really bad. And it's going to make the church and your life really, really difficult. So don't go below these things. Here's the floor. Don't steal. Watch the way you talk. Don't let your anger kind of erupt around you. But there's more. Because we're getting to this third category, which I think is really the most exciting place. Because this is what is so beautiful, is that God hasn't called us just to live on the floor. He's not called us just to kind of be in the don'ts sections. But did you realize what comes with each of these negative comments here is actually a positive opposite? Just just listen uh, as, as, I, as, as you hear this. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger so that you give the devil uh, a, a foothold. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work, and actually sharing with anyone who's in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but actually what is good, what fits the occasion, what builds up. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away, but be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted, forgiving each other. You see what he does here? Watch your anger, that's the floor. But don't go, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Keep, keep short accounts with one another so that you might actually not have it fester and have uh, a foothold then for temptation. That's the ceiling. The floor is put away anger. The ceiling is actually keep short accounts with each other and deal with your conflict in ways that are healthy. Okay, the floor is stop stealing. But the ceiling is actually not only work and do what God has called you to and steward the things that he's given you well, but even share. That there might be radical generosity amongst you. Okay, the floor is stop it with the putrid talk, but the ceiling is let your talk actually build others up. The floor is put away all of this anger and malice and bitterness, but the ceiling is let tenderheartedness and kindness and forgiveness reign. And this is really where we begin to see that this path that God has called us to is not just loving based on his love for us, and it's not just protecting, but it's actually beautiful. It is beautiful the way that he has called us to live. 
Just imagine with me for just a second. Imagine a place where those who were in conflict with one another dealt with their conflict on short accounts. They dealt with their conflict in kind and tender ways. They actually went face to face and dealt with each other. And they didn't sweep things under the rug. Neither did they respond in violence to each other. That's a pretty beautiful place, isn't it? Imagine a place where there is radical generosity. Where actually each person is out engaging in the things that God has put before them, saying, how might I steward these gifts that God has given me in the place that He's put me for the benefit of His kingdom and for the benefit of the people around me? Imagine that. And how might I then share all of this with my neighbor? That's a pretty beautiful place. Imagine a place where the words that came out of our mouths were encouraging and uplifting, where they proclaimed the beauty of the gospel to one another, where people went out of their way to come and say something kind and beautiful to another person. That's a place you want to be, isn't it? Imagine a place where there was radical forgiveness, where people were always repenting to one another and loving each other and forgiving each other and celebrating that forgiveness together. Friends, that's not only a place that we would want to be in as a church. That is a place that looks radically beautiful to those who are outside the church. Where people who are outside say, man, I don't know what is going on at Hope Presbyterian. But those people just treat each other differently than the people treat each other in the rest of my life. And I don't know what it is, but I want some of it. Can you imagine that beautiful place? It's a place you'd want to be, isn't it? As we close, let me just say this. The reason that God calls us to the ceiling and not the floor, there's a few reasons. One is He's calling us to the beauty, to be conformed to His image. And that is God who is infinitely beautiful in that way. But there's another reason too. And I think it's this. Have you noticed that actually all of those positive things take a whole lot more work and dependence on Jesus than just the negative things? I mean, the floor in some ways is easy, right? It's kind of the checkbox life. You know, didn't steal anything this week. Way to go. You know, like didn't say anything really terrible to anybody this week. Didn't, you know, blow up in anger and punch anybody in the nose. Check, 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 check. It looks like I'm good maybe. But try checking the box that says, my heart is tender. It's kind of hard to check that one. Try checking a box that says, you know, I exhibit kindness in all of that I do. Try checking the box that says, my life actually looks righteous and holy and looks a lot more like God than it used to. Friends, if that is going to be our life, if we are going to actually have a beautiful church and beautiful lives, then it's going to have to be greatly dependent upon Jesus. Because guess what? You can't uncallous your own heart. Jesus has to do it for you. You can't undarken your own mind. That actually has to be done by Jesus. You can't unalienate yourself from God. God has to do it for you through Jesus. And the beautiful truth of the entire first half of Ephesians is that that's what God has done. If you're not really sure what you think about Christianity, if you're not sure what you believe, let me tell you this. The great hope is that Jesus actually can do those things that you can't do on your own. Paul has spent the last three chapters proclaiming it. And if you are a Christian, the great hope is that he's done it. He simply called us to walk in it. Let's walk together in that beautiful way. Amen?
All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you even for things that sound sometimes like they're limiting. <laughs> because we know that it, they are loving. Because you are loving. Lord, we know that you hem us in and protect us and the things that you call us to stay away from are not because you want us to be sad. They're not because you want to hold your thumb over us. They're not because you want to keep us down. It's just the opposite. It's because you want us to flourish. Lord, will you change the way that we even understand sin and righteousness this morning? And will you show us the beauty of what this path is that you've called us to? That you might make us a church that looks more and more like this. So that those who are outside of this church might look in and say, something is going on. I need to check out who Jesus is. Will you reflect your beauty in our actions with one another? Lord, we do pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.